0: Welcome to Tanastudy.com. This is Neima Novetsky. Over our last couple of sessions, we've been looking at the unit of blessings and curses in Vayikra Perekh Chapter 26. We pointed out that the curses divide into five subunits, and we looked at the first four of these, which included curses of disease, famine, beast, and sword. Today we'll move into the final set of curses, which are the harshest set, predicting destruction of the land and exile of the people. In this class, we'll look at only the first few verses of the unit, verses 27-35, through which detail the destruction of the land itself. We'll leave the description of life in exile for our next class. As we'll see in a minute, our verses raise an important question relating to the unit of blessings and curses as a whole. When Hashem makes this covenant and promises the various rewards and punishments, do they relate to observance of all of the mitzvot, or only to certain particular mitzvot? It is this question which will be the focus of much of our sheer. Let's start, though, as usual, with the verses themselves. Verses 27 and 28, which we read already last class, introduce the unit. If you, in spite of this, won't listen to me, but walk contrary to me. If you, in spite of this, won't listen to me, but walk contrary to Then I will walk contrary to you in wrath, and I will chastise you seven times for your sins. For the fourth time in our chapter, Hashem warns the nation that if they do not listen to Him, He will make them pay sevenfold for their sins. This time, He adds that He will do so with much wrath, a wrath that is evident in the coming verses. Verse 29 is perhaps the most graphic of the curses. Detailing in extremely harsh imagery the severity of the famine that the people will find themselves in. You will eat the flesh of your sons and you will eat the flesh of your daughters. The famine will be so severe that in their hunger, people will eat the flesh of their own children. Later in history, Jeremiah echoes this prophecy, telling the nation that when under siege from the Babylonians, and I will feed them the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. Unfortunately, the prophecy comes true, as Yirmiyahu laments in Megilat Echa, See, O Lord, and consider, to whom thou hast done thus, if the women eat the fruit of their womb and the children they cared for with their own hands. The verses highlight not only the severity of the famine, but even more so, they showcase what has become of society. What type of mother, no matter how bad a famine, could possibly eat their children's flesh? Verse 30 continues. I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. Verse 31. I will lay your cities waste and will bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not take delight in the sweet fragrance of your offerings. Hashem tells the nation that he will destroy all their places of idol worshiper, both their high places and their chamanim. This word is related to the word hama, sun, leading Ibn Ezra to suggest that it refers to temples created for sun worship. One might question if this part of the verse should really be considered a punishment at all. After all, Hashem is simply destroying idolatry. Unfortunately, though, if the people are so mired in idolatry, chances are that they would perceive the destruction of their temples as a punishment, even if we do not. Either way, the continuation of the verse is undoubtedly a curse. Hashem promises that as he destroys the idolatrous houses of worship and their accompanying idols, he will have the people's corpses fall on the broken remnants. There is perhaps no better way to prove to the people their idols' utter impotence. The Gemara in Sanhedrin 63b speaks about the fulfillment of this curse as well. It shares how Eliyahu the prophet would wander the streets of Jerusalem searching for children who were swollen with hunger. He once found a child who was dying of starvation, lying helpless in a garbage heap. He asked the child, from which family are you? The child responded, I am from such and such a family. Eliyahu asked if there were any other people from his family who were still alive. When the child told him that he was the only one left, Eliyahu said to him, if I teach you something through which you will live, will you learn it? The child agreed. Eliyahu said to him, Every day you should say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. The child quickly told him, Hush! because he did not want to even hear mention of the name of Hashem. He had been brought up with idolatry, and for him the name of Hashem was an anathema. And so, instead of saying Shema, he took out a little idol from his bosom and began hugging it and kissing it until his stomach burst from hunger and his idol fell to the earth. And he fell upon it in fulfillment of our verse. And I shall cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols. Given this backdrop of idolatry, it is perhaps not surprising that Hashem tells the people that he will then abhor the nation and destroy not just their idolatrous places of worship, but the mikdash itself. They will no longer be able to bring sacrifices and Hashem will no longer find their fragrance pleasing. The punishment is actually reasonable. If the people have abandoned worship of Hashem, then there is no reason for the Mikdash to remain standing. This curse is the exact opposite of what we read in the section of Blessings, where Hashem had promised, And I will put my dwelling place among you and not abhor you. The next verse is moved to describe the destruction of the land and the subsequent exile. Verse 32. I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies that dwell therein will be astonished at it. Verse 33. I will scatter you among the nations, and I will draw out the sword after you, and your land will be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. The verses describe how the land will be so desolate as Am Yisrael is dispersed and the land ruined by enemy sword. Commentators debate the extent of the calamity which is predicted in these verses. Some read into the description of foreigners being astonished by the land the great extent of the, extent, the great extent of the desolation. Foreigners who move into the land will find it so lacking and so barren, and the place so ridden by disease that they will be shocked they will see it as a sign of how terrible and rebellious Israel must have been to deserve such a fate. Rashi and Ramban, though, suggest that there is a hidden blessing in the curse. When the nation leaves the land, it will be doomed to desolation. No one will be able to make it grow. And as such, no one will want to live there. It will remain and wait for Amisrael to return. Nahama Leibowitz suggests that when Ramban made his way to Israel at the end of his life, Such desolation is exactly what he saw, but instead of being disheartened, he took comfort in the thought that the land was simply waiting for its rightful owners to return. And in truth, throughout history, the land of Israel has notoriously been barren. All the way until this past century, when finally, with the return of Am Yisrael to the land, the pioneers' valiant efforts to make the land green once again bore fruit, and Israel is once again productive, having welcomed back her rightful owners. The next couple of verses further describe the land's desolation, explicitly connecting it to lack of observance of the mitzvah of Shemitah. Verse 34. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Even then, the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbath. Verse 35, As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest which it didn't have in your Sabbath when you lived on it. Hashem tells the people that when they are in exile and no one is around to work the land, the land will finally be able to rest and to enjoy all the Shabbatot that it did not get to enjoy while the people lived upon it. Implicit in these words is the fact that for years, when living in the land, the people did not observe the mitzvah of Shemitah. As such, Hashem warns that since they had not given the land a rest while living upon it, now, when the people are kicked out of the land, it will get all those years of rest that it missed. As we mentioned when we learned parashat Bahar, our verses single out the lack of observance of shmita as being one of the causes of the exile. This, and the worship of idolatry alluded to in the immediately preceding verses, are the only individual mitzvot mentioned throughout our parasha. The rest of the chapter speaks in much more general terms, saying, If you follow my statutes and keep my mitzvot, or the opposite, if you don't listen to me and don't observe my mitzvot. These verses mention the general categories of mitzvot and chukim, without specifying any individual examples. The concluding verse of the chapter 2 speaks of general observance of mitzvot, mentioning three distinct categories, Eila ha ba asher natan Hashem bino uvin b'nei ba Sinai These are the statutes, ordinances, and laws which Hashem made between Him and the children of Israel at Mount Sinai through the hands of Moshe. Again, this verse does not single out any specific mitzvah, but speaks in general terms. Interestingly, though, it does suggest that the mitzvot whose observance our chapter promises to reward or punish were those given at Mount Sinai specifically. This implies that the blessings and curses refer only to observance of mitzvot given at Mount Sinai and not those relayed in the Oho Mo'ed in the Tent of Meeting. If so, though, this would for some reason exclude most of the mitzvot of Sefer Vayikra, which were relayed after the tabernacle was built and revealed to Moshe in the Tent of Meeting. These various factors, the singling out of the mitzvah of Shemitah, the general formulation of nonspecific mitzvot or chokim in the rest of the chapter, And finally, the mention of mitzvot given on Mount Sinai specifically, lead commentators to debate what our chapter as a whole is talking about. Over observance of which mitzvot are the words of the rewards or punishments being promised. Are they being promised on keeping all of Torah as is commonly assumed? For observing just those mitzvot given at Sinai, but not including the later mitzvot mentioned in Sefer Re'i as the final verse of the chapter might imply? or perhaps for observance of just the mitzvah explicitly mentioned, the mitzvah of Shemitah. In exploring our question, it's important to note that our blessings and curses are not the only time the Torah describes a covenant and the reward and punishments that result from observing or violating the mitzvot. In both Shemot chapter 24 and Zvarim chapters 28 and 29, we see similar ceremonies. In Shmot 24, a covenant is enacted in which the people declare their intent to observe Hashem's commandments. How, if at all, is this ceremony related to our chapter? Devarim chapters 28 and 29, like our chapter, list rewards and punishments for observance or the lack thereof. In Devarim, though, it's explicit that the covenant covers the entire Torah. What light might this shed on the scope of the mitzvot referred to in our chapter? Commentators debate the issue reaching vastly different conclusions about the nature of the blessings and curses of our chapter and to what they refer. We'll begin by looking at Rashbam, whose starting point is the verses that we just read, the explicit mention of the mitzvah of Shemitah in the middle of the curses section. Rashbam suggests that the blessings and curses of the entire chapter relate only to the laws of Shemitah and Yovel, and not to mitzvot in general. It is these laws which have been spoken about in chapter 25, the chapter immediately preceding ours, and so it is natural to connect the two chapters and to posit that one refers back to the other. Linguistic similarities between the two chapters might further support the connection. Chapter 25's promise of prosperity to those who keep the sabbatical year is almost identical to the initial blessings mentioned in our chapter. There we read, If you keep my statutes and observe my ordinances, and do them. You shall sit securely in the land, and will give forth its fruit, and you shall be satiated. Here our verses echo. If you follow my statutes and observe my mitzvot, and do them. The land will give forth its fruit, and you shall eat your bread and be satiated, and sit securely in the land. The two sets of verses are almost identical in their language. The continuations of the blessings echo each other as well. A few verses later in chapter 25, we are promised, You shall eat of the old grains. In our chapter, we are similarly told, in addition, in both units, we read, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. Given these linguistic similarities and the juxtaposition of the two chapters, Rashbam's connecting of the blessings and curses to Shmita and Yovel specifically seems very logical. Nonetheless, though, the approach must contend with several textual and conceptual questions. First, on a fundamental level, we must ask, Why would Hashem list 40 verses worth of blessings and curses over the observance of just two mitzvot? What about all the other mitzvot? Why are these two so important that they are singled out? Rashbah might answer that Shemitah and Yovel are two of the most fundamental commandments in the Torah. As we have seen, they both require and instill a tremendous amount of faith in Hashem and simultaneously play a very important role in maintaining a healthy society. As such, the blessings and curses are dependent on their observance. In addition, since most of the blessings and curses relate to possession of the land or to exile, they fit a land-related mitzvah. On a textual level, we must question as well, how does Bam account for the fact that the blessings and curses are both introduced and summarized with a general formulation of observance of ha-chukim mishpatim as a whole. Rashbam might reply that the words chukim and mishpatim paralleled their usage in Vayikra 25, where they refer not to all mitzvot, but specifically to the laws of Shemitah and yovel. The chukim referred to the laws of Shemitah and yovel that concern man and God, while the mishpatim referred to the interpersonal laws, such as the prohibitions against fraud and the laws regarding buying and selling of land and slaves. How would Rashbam understand the concluding verse of our chapter, which suggests that the blessings and curses refer to those mitzvot given specifically at Sinai? This is actually not a problem at all for Rashbam, as he notes that chapter 25, which relates the laws of Shemitah and Yovel, also opens with the statement by Daber Hashem and Moshe Bahar Sinai, suggesting that both chapters were actually given at Sinai. According to him, then, our chapters are not in the chronological place. Both the mitzvot of Shemitah and Uvel and these blessings and curses on their observance were originally relayed back in Sefer Shmot before the tabernacle was built. This, of course, though, raises a different question. If the blessings and curses were given over then, why do they first appear in the verses here and not back in Sefer Shmot? Perhaps, as we spoke about when learning Parshat Bahar, this relates to the fact that at Sinai, before the sin of the golden calf, the people's next stop was supposed to be Eretz Yisrael. As such, at the time, Hashem emphasized the two mitzvot which are most dependent on the land, Shemitah and Yovel, warning the nation that living and remaining in the land is dependent on the observance of these two mitzvot. For though we are obligated in tons of mitzvot, and many are extremely important, none are as, intric- are as intricately connected to the land as the mitzvot of Shemitah and Yovel. The sin of the golden calf, though, delayed entry into the land. And so the Torah mentions the ceremony only now, when once again the people stand on eve of entry into the land of Israel. Sefer Bin Bidbar is about to discuss the physical preparations for entry and conquest, speaking of the division of the camp and the necessary sentences for war. So right beforehand, at the end of Sefer Vayikra, the Torah shares our spiritual preparation for entry the blessings and curses over the two mitzvot which are most fundamental to our rights to the land, Shemitah and Yovel. According to this approach, the blessings and curses of Sefer Vaikra and Sefer Dvarim are not parallel. Vaiikra focuses on the observance of only one set of laws, while Dvarim speaks of the Torah in its entirety, for at that point, once the whole Torah was given, Hashem naturally made a covenant on all. Rashban's grandfather, Rashi, stands on the other end of the spectrum. He suggests that the blessings and curses of our chapter relate to observance of all six hundred and thirteen commandments, and even on the oral on the oral law, Torah Shaba. As support, he points to the general formulation regarding non specific mitzvot throughout, and the chapter's conclusion, which mentions Ela Hachukim Bahtim Bahat Torot, the word hatorot to refer to both the written and oral Torah. In other words, the blessings and curses refer to observance of everything from Torah Shebekhtav to Torah Sheba'apeh. The fact that Shemitah is mentioned explicitly does not mean that the blessings and curses refer to it alone, only that in the context of the threat of exile, its observance warranted extra mention. If the chapters refer to all laws, Why does the conclusion specify only the laws that were given on Mount Sinai? Rashi maintains that all of the commandments, with all the details of their observance, were given to Moshe when he went to get the tablets at Sinai. As such, this verse is not singling out any specific group of mitzvot that was given at a certain point of time, but referring to the entire Torah and simply sharing that the blessings were made and all of these, because all of the mitzvot were given at Sinai. One of the advantages of this reading is that it does not have to posit a chronology, as did Rashbam. According to Rashi then, now that the people are about to enter the land, it was an appropriate time to warn them about observance. As they had already received the entire Torah, they could be warned about it all. As such, our chapter becomes directly parallel to the blessings and curses of Sefer Dvarim. Both were all inclusive. According to Rashi then, Each time the nation found itself on the eve of entry into the land, Hashem made a covenant over all of Torah to motivate observance. Let's move to one last understanding. There's a middle position taken by Rabag, who posits that the blessings and curses are dependent on the observance of all the mitzvot given from the revelation at Sinai through Sefer Vayikra. His disagreement with Rashi relates to whether or not one understands that the entire Torah was already related to the nation. Rabag posits that even though everything might have been taught to Moshe at Sinai, not all of the laws had already been relayed to the people, and so it would be illogical to make a covenant on observance of laws that had not yet been taught to the nation. As such, he assumes that only the laws that were already taught to the people, the laws from the time of the revelation at Sinai through Sefer Vayikra, those are the laws that are referred to in our chapter. He too points to the chapter's conclusion, explaining that the mishpatim mentioned in the verse referred to the commandments of parashat mishpatim. The chukim include the non-intuitive laws of Sefer Vayikra, such as the laws of holidays, purity, or shemitah, and that the torot are the ritual procedures of Sefer Vayikra, such as the laws of sacrifices, which are prefaced by the terms torat Taula. Torah Tamincha. As such, taken together, the three terms include all of the commandments given from Parashat Gitro through Parashat Bahar. As we asked earlier, for this approach too we must ask. If the verses refer not only to the laws of Sefer Shmot, why does the verse verse specify that these laws were given on Mount Sinai? Rabbah asserts, that all of the commandments were indeed given to Moshe when he ascended Mount Sinai to get the tablets, even though they were not yet relayed to the people. As such, the phrase doesn't come to exclude commandments that were given again elsewhere, but simply to state that all the laws to which the blessings and curses refer were given to Moshe at Mount Sinai. Alternatively, this position could have explained that the verse is not limiting itself to laws given when Moshe ascended Mount Sinai but rather refers to all the laws given in the vicinity of Mount Sinai, whether on the mountain or in the Omoed at the foot of the mountain. Again, an advantage of this reading too is that it need not posit that our verses are out of order. So according to Rabag, how does our chapter relate to the similar covenants and blessings and curses in Sefer Shmot and Tvarim? According to Rabag, the covenant of Shmot 24 was made over the laws of Parashat Yitro and Mishpatim, all the laws that were given until that point in time. Vayikra's ceremony takes the nation a step further, warning them to observe not only these mitzvot, but all the laws that were given since then as well. The covenant in Zvarim then moves one step further, as it includes all the new commandments given in the intervening 38 years. And so, according to Rabag, each of the three ceremonies, ceremonies—Shmot 24, Vayikra 26, and Zvarim 28, is based on the same premise, to warn the nation to observe all that had been commanded until that point. They differ only in what each covered, for more laws were given at each point in time. Why was each given when it was? At each of these points, the people stood on the eve of entry into the land, only because of the sin of the golden calf and the sin of the spies was entry ultimately delayed until after Sefer Dvarim. So to summarize, we have seen three different opinions. Rashi is the most inclusive, assuming that the blessings and curses in the chapter refer to not only all six hundred and thirteen mitzvot but to the oral law as well. Rashban stands on the other side of the spectrum, assuming that the blessings and curses that the blessings and curses relate to observance of one set of mitzvot alone, Shemitah and Yovel, the immediate context of our chapters and the only mitzvot emphasized explicitly within. Rabbah takes the middle position, assuming that the ceremony referred to the mitzvot relieved in Sefer Shemot and Sefer Vayikra, all the mitzvot that the people had received until that point. In Mirta Hashem, in our next class, we will finish the unit of curses, looking at the last few verses which speak of the people's fate in exile and how finally they will repent of their ways and confess their sins. As we'll see, though, it's not so clear if this confession will bring atonement in its wake.